0: echo chamber brought to you by the homes report and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketeers for dc okay ladies and gentlemen welcome to the echo chamber we've been away from a while but i'm very happy to tell you that we're back on air this is arun sudhaman editor-in-chief of the homes report i'm joined by robert phillips who is back in the hot seat after quite a long time away from the echo chamber robert welcome back
1: thanks nice to be here Rin.
0: and of course i've got to thank our production partner marketeers for dc for helping us to deliver today's podcast robert we probably have a few things to go through it's been a long summer things have happened in the pr world i think you've been writing your book
1: It's right. The book is uh, now with the publishers, and we're hoping for a late autumn release. Tell me the title. Trust me, PR is Dead. That's right. It really annoys PR people. It does seem to upset certain people. I was thinking about um, the flyleaf for the book with the sentence semi-socialist drivel, which was Mike Love, um, the chairman of Bursa Marcella in the UK, uh, or I love my agency, which is Colin Byrne, Weber Shanwick. That's his response to PR is Dead. Uh, Or one of my former very close colleagues, Edelman, I hate the title.
0: Ah, okay. Yeah, th- these are great. I think you should put them on the flyleaf. I think this, this, this is excellent. I've, I've been watching your, uh, your Twitter interactions with the industry with interest, um, and, and no doubt we will talk about that perhaps a little bit more later on. But let's start, shall we, with one of the big stories over the past week. Ketchum's relationship with one of its biggest clients, the Russian government, has again come under the spotlight after a new york times article which itself of course was triggered if you'll excuse the pun by uh, russia's involvement in the uh, in the ongoing ukraine crisis a situation that has really hurt i think russia's relations with the external world uh, and i suppose the question here is um is whether ketchum should continue working on the account given russia's current status within the global community?
1: What? Well, for, for frequent listeners of, uh, of this podcast, we've, of course, covered some of this ground before. Mm-hmm. We have. Um, there was the op-ed written by Vladimir Putin. Yes, um, that
0: was a memorable op-ed. Yeah, which was, in fact, in the
1: New York Times, was it not?
0: I, indeed, indeed it was. Yeah.
1: Um, and we've discussed in the context of previous crises in the Middle East the ethics or otherwise of, of working for a certain type of regime. Mm-hmm. And it is problematic for global firms because we have to be We are taking to Anglo or American a view or Anglo-American a view of world events and we must avoid sitting in judgment on them and looking west to east is very different from looking east to west or actually from the centre to the centre so I think that on the face of it, it's quite easy to criticize and even condemn Ketchum for their support to the Russian government. But on the other hand, they are a global firm, albeit one with the US parent. And as a global firm, I guess they have to look after the interests of all their constituents.
0: Even as a global firm, do you really feel that there's any meaningful public relations work they can actually be doing for Russia, given uh, the, the, the country's... Well, 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 attitude. I think, yeah, towards I mean, off, yeah, I mean, communication. I mean, off air,
1: you made the point that if they're spinning, they shouldn't be, and if they're telling the truth, they probably shouldn't be either. <laughs> so it leaves them in something of a conundrum. Um, uh, you know historically we've we've followed what our government's advice has been in terms of whether it's legitimate or otherwise uh, to work for a certain client or a certain organization I don't really think that goes far enough I think that everyone has to make their own moral judgments one of the things that I would always praise my alma mater Edelman for was their policy in not uh, of saying that people didn't have to work on business where they felt morally compromised and I think that is the right thing to do mm-hmm. so it would be quite interesting to ask people within K Ketchum how they feel about servicing Mm. the Russian government account. Um, That said, I also think there is a point at which senior Mm. leadership within these organizations, within these PR consultancies, need to show leadership Mm -hmm. and need to make very clear their position on certain matters. Certainly, if I was running Ketchum and I was asked to do the public relations to the Russian government, I would say no, very Mm. firmly, very squarely and very publicly. And why would you not? I think for the reasons that you said, I think that there is a very much a smoke and mirrors campaign going on. I think probably from both sides uh, within the conflict. Um, but there's no doubt about it that there, uh, it's a, as much a campaign of disinformation as it is mm-hmm. one of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder about the authenticity and legitimacy of the messages that are coming out. And it may not be. in Ketchum's defense that they are manufacturing those messages, but they are effectively agents for those messages, and that becomes problematic.
0: That's really my point. I don't think actually the geographic argument, I I totally agree with you, I don't think it matters that Russia is not the US. You know, we we live in an age of global companies and so on. But I think the bigger issue is the misinformation and potential disinformation and, and how any kind of agency or firm can credibly claim to be engaging honestly and transparently in this situation. I
1: think that's right. And, you know, it is very difficult. Where do you draw the line? Do you act for WikiLeaks um, mm-hmm. or do you act for the US government in the, in the, in the battle for, for or against Edward Snowden? for example. Difficult call. I think Ketchum probably is beset by another problem which we know confronts a lot of the large consultancies. They bought their partner in Russia mm-hmm. because of their partner's account with the Russian government. It is their single largest client in Russia and possibly one their top ten globally, I guess. And you that makes so? for a very challenging piece of decision making. Again, mm-hmm. in my in my mind, uh, you have to put Uh, people before money, citizens Mm. before capital. So it's a pretty clear choice as to what they should or should not be doing. And the views of people
0: within Ketchum, surely if enough people within the agency are not comfortable with this, that has got to be an important factor.
1: Yeah, and to the point about being a global firm, you're accountable to your global employees. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder how much of a dialogue or how much of an engagement that has been there. Mm -hmm. And then you get into this sort of strange irony that... uh, a lot of global communications firms talk about employee engagement and then fail to engage their own employees in insignificant matters. Mm. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what a straw poll of Ketchum employees worldwide mm. uh, felt about their engagement of the Russian government, given the current circumstances.
0: Okay, well, there you go. We look forward to the results of that poll with
1: interest. Well, maybe we should ask Rob Flaherty to, uh, to come on and talk about it. I, I will certainly
0: extend that invitation, and I'll let you know what happens with it. Shall we move on and discuss another topic, another geopolitical issue, actually, and this one um, of considerable concern over the past couple of weeks, the rise of ISIS or the Islamic State, um, however you choose to to call them, in the Middle East, in Iraq in particular. And I think you wanted to discuss the success, I suppose, that uh, ISIS has been having in disseminating its message.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, like you, I'd feel very uncomfortable about using the word success. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult to be talking about a matter of such hideous reality in the context of their public relations or communications. The history of you know, extreme movements has always or often been matched by history of iconography. Mm. Um, and obviously the Nazi Party mm. and uh, the SS were with the most recent examples of that, but they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think it was wearing I was in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago and came across ISIS merchandise being sold by street vendors and in shops, black flags, black caps, t-shirts. There's also an interesting article last week about comparing the growth of ISIS and the marketing of ISIS with an internet startup in Silicon Valley. Mm. And apparently they follow exactly the same growth patterns in terms of social media adoption. And so there is something that suggests that ISIS is very much a modern model Mm -hmm. of marketing, albeit a a rather terrifying one. Mm. But it does sort of speak to some of the issues we face today, still the importance of iconography, Mm. uh, iconic content. Um, uh, ISIS's branding has been very deliberate. Uh, They have their own owned media channels, which are themselves branded, which the news stations sort of broadcast or rebroadcast quite happily with the, with the logo's top right-hand corner as though they were sort of running in something from Sky Sports or RTL. Mm. And that's a worry. I think they also are playing very much the fact that we live in a content-driven, 24-7, rolling news economy. And uh, they're taking full advantage of it. I think the challenge really is not how do they handle us but how do we handle them. And I wonder whether enough pause for thought has been given by global broadcasters. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, we won't show the beheading, Mm. but they still showed the moment before the beheading, Mm. and then repeated that after Foley alleged killing with the Sotloff alleged killing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's probably more responsibility on our newscasters than they've possibly accepted so far.
0: And do you think movements like ISIS are having more success in, I suppose, engaging and interacting with who I imagine their sort of key demographic is, which is disaffected youth in certain countries across the Middle East and North Africa?
1: Well, as ever, we we tend not to look at the real causes of Mm -hmm. the problem, and we only ever sort of look at the symptoms, because it's easier to report the symptoms in a 90-second news package uh, on CNN or the BBC or whatever. I remember speaking at the Abu Dhabi Media Summit the year before last, and a lot of people there were preoccupied immediately after the, the so-called Arab Spring with the problems of youth unemployment in the region. Mm. And in the coverage of all of this, you don't really see mm-hmm. coverage about youth unemployment in the Middle East. In some of the countries, I think Saudi in particular, youth unemployment is as high as it is in Spain. Mm. Um, but this is very rarely reported. So again, I think there's a greater responsibility to, to show some depth in reporting and not mm-hmm. just the superficiality, horrendous it is of, of what is going on. I also think that the news media struggles even with the branding. Mm -hmm. They're trying not to call it Islamic State because they know that that's what Islamic State wants to be called but they still refer to it as Islamic Mm -hmm. State. The politicians um, struggle likewise. And I think that there is, uh, again, another problem which it makes a lot of our own politicians and news media confront their own responsibilities historically as to what they've done and the policies that they've followed Mm -hmm. and they don't really want to discuss that now. So, again, it's a way of burying the real news uh, within a more glossed-over, albeit sickening agenda.
0: All right. Well, a a difficult one. And, And it's been a difficult issue, frankly, for the world's leaders to handle, both in terms of President Obama, David Cameron here, and leaders of other countries as well. How well do you think they're handling this particular communications challenge?
1: I think it's a great question. I think it runs to the heart of the problem of the false expectations that we now have in a media-driven society of leaders, political or business, they're not allowed to give the wrong answer. Mm. Uh, there was that moment uh, last week when Barack Obama said, I don't yet have a strategy, mm. uh, which was a moment of honesty mm. uh, and thoughtfulness. And I know sometimes you can be criticized of being too thoughtful as a, as a president and, and too slow to respond. And then one of his spokespeople came on and almost immediately after said, no, the president didn't mean that. What he meant is we do have a strategy. Mm. And I think this speaks to the issue in business and in politics that we're not allowed to fail anymore. We're not allowed to say we don't know. We're not allowed to say we're wrong. Mm-hmm. Which actually then leads to sometimes, you know, well over manicured or sometimes fatuous answers mm-hmm. to very complex questions mm. and the, the the rise of isis is a very complex question and there mm-hmm. is no simple answer and i think leaders should be respected for saying they don't have all the answers and are trying to find them
0: mm. how do you think mr cameron has performed
1: well, the cynical part of me, uh, when uh, the Home Secretary, the UK Home Secretary Theresa May, raised the terror level, uh, uh, and Cameron then appeared very presidential behind his dais to, to, to reinforce the message, happened to be less than 24 hours after Douglas Carswell defected to UKIP. It seemed like surely a very...
0: not political concerns behind a, a, a policy decision such
1: as this. It depends whether you believe that uh, old school spin is still alive and mm. kicking somewhere. But sure as hell, that press conference and that announcement killed the UKIP story stone dead. Mm. Okay, indeed.
0: Okay, next up, let's talk a little bit about the Guardian story from, I think it was early August, uh, where in a kind of breathless article that they came out with, they claimed to have definitively established that the world's top 20 PR firms will not work with climate change deniers, which was interesting, firstly, because they had a list of firms who weren't. exactly the world's top 20 PR firms but they had enough big PR firms for it to still be a pretty good list and secondly um, it was fairly ambiguous the phrasing that they had come up with um, the questioning they had used to ask these agencies uh, which was specifically um, a pledge that they would not represent clients who deny man-made climate change or take campaigns seeking to block regulations Limiting carbon pollution. Now, most of the agencies contacted by the Guardian agreed with that pledge, including, um, I think, all of the WPPPR firms, Wagner, Edstrom, Weber, Shandwick, Tex One Hundred, and Fin Partners. Edelman famously did not take the pledge, but then did within a week, which led to another even more breathless article where The Guardian announced it had the first definitive statement from a PR firm on climate change. So looking past all of the breathlessness, shall we say, there seems to be enough ambiguity here to justify some scepticism about this particular article, do you think?
1: Well, I think we have to be very careful. I mean, I think the story itself is is symptomatic of the muddle which the PR industry often gets itself into. It's part of its own heritage of being seen to spin everything. And so, therefore, the underlying assumption is, is that PR firms are bad, that they're spinning on behalf of bad people in order to cover up even worse things. So, therefore, the starting point of articles like that is inherently critical rather than uh, open-minded. Right. So, I think that's one of the problems. The second problem or the second issue is that you can imagine how many PR firms – and Edelman was eventually outed by The Guardian – but how many of those PR firms were sent into a, no pun intended, spin of their own when the question landed – Right. Uh, because where do you draw the line if you work for one of the oil majors, one of the extraction firms, well, one fact, the mining Well, in fact, I mean, companies. most of I mean... these
0: firms do work for energy companies, which actually brings up another point. The fact is very few companies deny man-made climate change, even ExxonMobil. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm not here to cast aspersions against ExxonMobil because I think they're a very litigious company, but definitely a company that many critics see as the most regressive of the fossil fuel giants. Um, even they have stated that climate change is a real thing and poses long-term risks. Of course, they spend plenty of money in Washington, DC on various groups and policies that might cast that statement into doubt. But the point is very few companies deny man-made climate change.
1: Well, we're back to the issue we touched upon in the Russian context, which is where do you draw the moral line Mm -hmm. and who is the moral arbiter? Mm -hmm. And I think that we each have our own moral compass, moral radars, and we have to be guided by that. So if someone came to you and said, I'd like – I mean, for example, if I'd been asked to publish uh, Nigel Lawson's book, which was effectively a rejection of climate change denial, I wouldn't have publicized that book. I didn't believe in its content. I didn't believe uh, in its arguments and, in fact, his arguments seemed to be more about market economics than they did about uh, climate change itself. But that would be a personal choice it doesn 't mean that other people don 't have the rights to publicize that book and to put the argument out there and I do think there is a an increasing degree not just in the world of communications but generally of over political correctness and thought police mm-hmm. that 's creeping in and i I say that as a lefty liberal um, who often does have and take issue with very specific things. I wrote a book with Jules Peck on communications and climate change back in 2008 so Mm -hmm. i do have a very strong point of view on this but i wouldn't deny other people in -hmm. this particular instance the right to voice an alternative opinion and indeed surely the whole thrust here mistakes the ethics of a client with the ethics of the work and indeed with the ethics of the consultancy that's undertaking the work Mm. so you have this sort of holy trinity because you you could do unethical work for greenpeace Absolutely. And in fact, Greenpeace in the Netherlands ran into quite a lot of trouble two, three years ago when um, they planted a fake bomb on a railway line. Mm. I think, uh, I think the well, they just cool. did a
0: fake press conference for the, uh, the Shell Arctic drilling story.
1: Yeah. So now they would claim that they're you know, direct action activists mm. and that's what they do. So again, I think we, we, we tend to over moralise be overjudgmental. Uh, and we tend to go with what where popular mood and, and sentiment takes us.
0: Yeah. But it seems to me that many of the PR firms involved in this story or stories of this kind do get themselves into a bit of a flap when an organization like The Guardian contacts them and says, Are you working will you work for a climate change denier? Yeah. Would you work for a foreign dictator? Yeah. And they scramble around to find I think the, the answer that will offend the least people. And uh, what yeah. do you think they should be doing?
1: Well, I think it runs to the heart of the problem that the PR industry has created for itself. It has, oh. and, and you know, joking aside, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to call time on the PR industry, and it was time to move on into a different era, because I think it would never shed that moniker of spin. Mm. And and really. Even though there has been, have been many great strides by many of the large firms to really clean up their act in terms of half-truths or non-truths, that legacy of spin still persists, which mm-hmm. is why you'll keep on getting questions from people like The Guardian and which is why uh, certain PR consultancies find it difficult to answer. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough... The Edelman memo that was finally leaked to The Guardian. It was an email that they ended up up in possession of. I think Mark Haas says something like, there is no upside in answering this guy. Yeah, he was right. And he is absolutely (laughs) right. And there was nothing dishonest or dishonorable about his response. Apparently no upside for him either, but that's another story. Um,
0: Finally, last up, the summer brought news that Huntsworth CEO Lord Peter Chadlington is going to retire after a... Storied public relations career that spanned some thirty-seven, thirty-eight years. Of course, included the founding of one of the seminal public relations firms, uh, Shandwick, which of course is now Weber Shandwick, and latterly the launch and growth of Huntsworth.
1: Your thoughts on his career? On his career overall. Well, I know Peter well. Mm. He's a good friend. In fact, he's been on this show with us. He has indeed. Yes. Um, he was very good. So... He was
0: much more eloquent than either of us. <laughs>
1: yeah. And and I think for a will, but he also drinks more green tea, and eats uh, more healthy. He's one of the few men I know that eats three breakfasts. He has a 7.30, 8.30, and 9.30 sitting, which I think is admirable. I'm a huge Peter fan. I think he's an incredibly generous, funny, well-read, interesting guy. I think his contribution to the PR industry in, in the UK has been titanic. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, the way that, that Shandwick was built up uh, as a business, uh, I think is is one of the you know one of the great business case studies alongside many of his, other, of his sort of competitors at the time. I think it's a shame in a way that um, he never quite scaled the heights with Huntsworth mm. as he did with Shanwick. and certainly the the Blue Focus deal, which we discussed last year, was a really interesting piece of positioning, especially then Blue Focus went on with the acquisition of uh, We Are Social. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I think there's a bit of unfinished business there that could show the way that an industry might evolve.
0: Mm, Indeed. Um, Do you think we'll see the likes of Lord Chadlington again? I mean, Lord Bell's career is also drawing to a close. Are we going to see these... uh... These titans of the industry again in the UK.
1: Well, we always wonder. It's like the Mad Men era passing, isn't it? Um, mm. And uh, I, I think we get that in most sectors. You, you had that in the automotive industry with the with the sort of the the, the great sort of men of detroit moving on in the after the 50s 60s and, and even 70s So i think that when we're in the moment it seems like we'll never see them again mm-hmm. but i'm sure that there'll be other characters that rise mm, and hopefully more women well the diversity issue extends just beyond women in the mm. uh, in the public relations sector and beyond black and minority ethnic communities yep. um, it's as much about disability mm-hmm. and age funny enough mm. uh, as anything else um you know i counted uh, when I left uh, my role at Edelman, that less than 7% of the business was over the age of 45. So I think that we, we lose a lot of very talented women from the public relations industry. We also lose an awful lot of very talented older people as wise counsellors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of the large PR firms make their money from uh, lots of so young and inexpensive people running around doing endless PowerPoint presentations for, for clients. Mm. But back to the the Huntsworth-Chaddington thing, Peter has achieved some amazing things. Uh, I'm sure that there'll be people in the reformed communication sector that's not quite the PR sector that will rise to achieve great things again. Uh, the danger is, is that we have become not just in, in public relations, but generally managerial and bureaucratic mm-hmm. rather than visionary and leadership. I'm not sure that Peter ever achieved the vision that he wanted with Huntsworth, but he certainly achieved the leadership that he wanted with Shandwick.
0: Mm, indeed. Okay, well,
1: I think that brings us to a close. So the book is out. book is out. should be out. The e-version should be out in November, and hopefully we'll have the hardback out in January.
0: Okay, well, listeners, look look out for it. Um, I'm impressed that you you came to the podcast armed with the exact comments from your detractors. That was a nice touch. it see seared,
1: <laughs> seared in my consciousness. Indeed. How, how could you forget them? Um, and just on that, by the way, one, <laughs> one final thing is that for all the detractors who are in their 40s and 50s and maybe seen as pale, male, and stale, mm. there's been a groundswell of support from people in their 20s mm-hmm. who are mostly female, mm. uh, who realize that the industry is in urgent need of reform and that there is a different way to lead us out.
0: Mm. Well, that brings us to a close of today's show. Thank you all so much for listening in. The Echo Chamber will be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks to Robert Phillips. Great to be here. And thank you, of course, to Marketeers 4DC. We will be back. Thanks for listening to the Echo Chamber podcast, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers 4DC, the international broadcast specialist. For all the latest information, you can follow us on Twitter using at Homes Report. Check out our Facebook page or simply explore the website at homesreport.com.